Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. If the entire Bible clearly and repeatedly teaches that there is one supreme God who is over all and that Jesus is his subordinate son, then surely we should find evidence of this idea in the historical writings of Christians after the New Testament period, right? Within the four broad strands of Christianity in the second and third centuries, three of them embraced thoroughgoing subordinationism, while the fourth, the modalists, taught that Jesus just was the Father. In this episode, we'll focus on the three early subordinationist groups, the Gnostics, the Dynamic Monarchians, and the Logos Incarnationists, to explore what they each believed about Jesus. Here now is episode 422, part 12 of our One God class, Early Church History. Number 12, One God in Early Church History. Norman Geisler wrote a systematic theology set of volumes in which he said, The earliest fathers of the church spoke of the Trinity by doctrine and even by name. The fathers of the first two centuries after Christ followed the teachings of the New Testament in affirming the Trinity. I believe that this is a total myth. I don't believe that is at all true. I don't see the New Testament talking about the Trinity, using the T word, discussing the various components of the Trinity, and I certainly don't find it in the earliest Christian authors. This is, I call this the myth of Trinitarian primacy. It's the idea that the Trinity was always there, just nobody talked about it, until these evil heretics came along and doubted it, and then we get these elaborate explanations. It's a myth. It's not really what happened. And as we've seen in this class already, the standard teaching of the Bible is that there's one God overall. And so if there's one God overall, and Jesus, we saw, is his subordinate son, not the same individual as the one God overall, then we don't have the Trinity from the New Testament. But it's, it's even more than that. The Trinity is not found in Scripture. Where is the Trinity theory put forward in Scripture, I ask? Where is it? Show it to me. Which book, chapter, or even paragraph teaches one God in three persons? Where is that language? If you search one God in three persons in your Bible, you will have zero results. What verse mentions the words co-eternal, co-essential, or co-equal? Why don't we have clear teaching on this important revelation if, in fact, God intended the Scriptures to reveal a trinity? Where should we go to find the hypostatic union, eternal generation, or the mystery of the homoousia, of one substance? I got a new theory. Here's my new theory. The Bible teaches one God who is overall. Over time, different Christian groups developed new and more exalted ways of thinking about Christ. That's the idea of Christology, what you think about Christ culminating with a full-blown Trinity theory only in the 4th century. So what I, what I think is that it's time to be honest. We just need to be honest with the evidence, whether the, the early Christian authors who wrote about Christ and who wrote about God believed in the Trinity or not. These are facts of history. We don't need to 
bend them one way or put spin on them the other way. Let's just see what happened in the historical record and just be honest with it. Alvin Lampson wrote a book called The Church of the First Three Centuries, in which he surveyed all of the early Christian authors that he had access to. And he concluded, the modern doctrine of the Trinity is not found in any document or relic belonging to the church of the first three centuries. They testify, so far as they testify at all, to the supremacy of the Father, the only true God, and to the inferior and derived nature of the Son. There is nowhere among these remains a co-equal trinity. This was a conception to which the age had not arrived. It was of later origin. So, until the fourth century, there was a lot of freedom about the question of who is Christ. And who was Christ? Did he exist before he was born? Who is he now that he's in heaven today? These kinds of questions. There was a lot of dialogue and dispute. After the fourth century, it becomes a really hot controversy that by the end of the fourth century, by the year 381, becomes law and you have to believe a certain way. Now for today, I'd like to survey those who believed in one God overall in the period from the end of the New Testament to the year 325. Because at the year 325, we have the Council of Nicaea, and that really gets things cooking. It's like when you turn the crockpot on, you know, things start really heating up. And so I like to divide all Christian groups into two Christologies, subordinationists and egalitarians. That's how I see this thing shaking out. You can divide people up in lots of different ways when it comes to Christian history in the second and third centuries in particular is what our focus is, late first century, second century, and third century. But I think this is really helpful. These subordinationists are people that believe in one God overall. And these egalitarians believe that either the modalistic monarchians, the modalistic monarchians here, they believe that Jesus just is the Father. So they have one God overall too, for the record. But Jesus is the one God overall. Whereas the Trinitarians, we have to wait to see what they have to say until next time because we're not getting into the 4th century today. Okay? But they have a more sophisticated way of thinking about it. It's actually extremely brilliant. Give them credit. Uh, but I don't find any Trinitarians in the late 1st or in the 2nd century or in the 3rd century. And then we have these subordinationists over here, an interesting grouping of Christians. We have the Gnostics and the Semi-Gnostics. We have the Dynamic Monarchians and the Logos Incarnationists. That's my own word, Incarnationists. I don't, I don't think it's really going to stick, but I, I needed a word to describe what these people were. And I, I hope you'll, you'll see what I mean by that in, in just a little bit. So for the modalist monarchians, I'm not really going to get into these guys. They exist in the late second and then into the third century and following. Examples of them are Praxius, who was in the second and third century, Noetus, and Sibelius in the third century. And uh, there are other examples of them in the fourth century. But like I said, these are ones that just see the Father as Jesus or Jesus as the Father. Uh, today they're called oneness, uh, people that believe in the idea of oneness. And so I'm not really going to get into them because I'm really focused on this idea of one God overall and Jesus as his subordinate son. Okay, so that's, in my estimation, the subordinationists here. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on these three groups. I'm going to look at the Gnostics. I'm going to look at the dynamic Monarchians. 
and I'm going to look at the Logos Incarnationis. Are you ready? Strap in your seatbelt, and let's go. The Gnostics. Oh, man. They're so fascinating. So weird. Just like imagine a sci-fi movie with way too many characters, names to remember. And like all the names of all the characters are attributes or virtues. And you get like some minor sense of how complicated Gnosticism really is. But anyhow, the Gnostics have this really elaborate pre-story before the creation of the heavens and the earth. All Gnostics generally believe that it was an evil god who created our world as an act of rebellion named Yaldabaoth. Yaldabaoth is the creator of our world. It's not the god of Jesus, but a different god who is a rebellious god. So just chew on that for a second, right? So you have on the left side of the screen here, the original, the parent of the entirety, the first principle, also called the monad, and that monad, that, that indivisible, simple, original being, or being itself, contemplates a thought. As it contemplates, it generates the second principle, which is the barbelo. Barbelo then, in turn, generates these other aeons of which Christ is one. So Christ is one of the intermediary heavenly beings that existed prior to the creation of the heavens and the earth. And uh, so that's, that's how the Gnostics think about it. This diagram is from Bentley Layton, a uh, specialist on the Gnostics, and you can read lots more about it if you read his books. But my point is to say that for a Gnostic, that's a G-N, you don't really say Gnostic, right? It's just Gnostic. For a Gnostic, Christ is not on the same level as God. Christ is inferior to God. That's clear. But Christ is also not human. Christ is a divine being brought into existence in the distant past prior to the creation of the world, who then, depending on what form of Gnosticism we work with, like for example, Valentinus develops Gnosticism and kind of Christianizes it a little bit more, Christ now comes to save us. But Christ is not actually a human being. Christ does not have flesh. If you were walking with Christ along the beach you would only see your footprints and not his because he is an aeon from another realm that just appears to be human. And that word appears or seems is the Greek word dokeo from which we get the word docetism. So the idea of docetism is the idea that Christ appears human, but he's not really. He's really just divine. But not at the level of the original principle. Does that make sense? Another gentleman who believed similarly, but he wasn't a Gnostic, is a guy named Marcion, and his followers are called Marcionites, and he flourished as well as the Valentinians and the Sethian Gnostics, all three of these, and other, there's Basilides and Saturninus, I'm simplifying just to make this not too complicated, but uh, these Gnostic types or these Docetic types uh, flourished in the second century, but then they didn't just die out, you know, they continued on. Uh, and a lot of church history writings are fighting against these Gnostic Christians trying to say, hey, you guys are crazy. We don't believe like you. So a lot of the books on heresy is directed towards the Gnostics. So Marcion rejected the Old Testament as the work of an evil God, but he didn't believe in all that prehistory stuff the Gnostics have. But he did believe that Jesus appeared as a human but not, did not have a fleshly body. So let me move on to the next one here. So that's, that's the Gnostics, divine only Jesus, 
And I found a picture of Jesus that kind of looks like a cartoon. It doesn't look quite real. So I hope that communicates the Gnostic Jesus to you. All right, then we have the dynamic Monarchians. Monarchian comes from the word one and ruler. Hey, I like it already. Thus, all Monarchians believe there is one God overall. Dynamic comes from dynamis, or dynamis, and if you want to use the English pronunciation, the word for power. Thus, a dynamic Monarchian, this is not my term, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an awkward term, but like it's a historical term, so we're using it. A dynamic Monarchian is one who believed the one God who rules over all empowered Christ to do what he did. If you believe that and you don't believe in preexistence, you are a dynamic Monarchian. And you see the Jesus I picked for the dynamic Monarchians is just like a real human being. You catch that? All right, so what I want to do is go through seven individuals who were dynamic monarchians between the first century and the third century. And uh, I'm not going to quote all of them because there's just like too much, too much, uh, it would be too much, I think. But uh, first up, we have the author of the Didache. The Didache is one of the earliest Christian documents ever written outside the New Testament. It's a very cool document. You should read it. It's not that long. And in the Didache, they clearly recognize God as the one who made everything, that God is the creator. And in the prayer, there are a couple of prayers in the Didache. In the prayers, they call Jesus your servant. So they're praying to God, and they call Jesus your servant. And so I th- and there's no hint of preexistence or anything like that. So I think that the Didache actually fits in with the dynamic monarchians as well as Clement of Rome. Now, these first two, I'm going to give you a disclaimer. These first two, they could go either way. They could go into a different group because they don't specifically address this issue. But what's absent from them is any, any mention of Christ as an intermediary in creation. They don't talk about that at all. They just talk about the Father as the creator and then Jesus as, you know, talking about his human career. So Clement of Rome is the second example, I believe, and he is very strong on subordination. He says that, and it's like when we read the epistles of Paul, how do we know that Paul is, is a subordinationist? Well, it's the prepositions. Everything is God does by Christ or through Christ or in Christ. Right? God's always the actor is doing it through Jesus. That's how First Clement talks, uh, which is the book attributed to Clement of Rome. He says, the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May grace and peace from Almighty God through Christ be yours. He says, so then Christ is from God and the apostles are from Christ. The way he talks about Christ and talks about God sounds like a dynamic monarchian or somebody who believes that way. Now, disclaimer over. All right, so we have, first up, these two Jewish groups, the Nazarenes and the Ebionites. They're Messianic Jews. Hey, we got them today. They were there back then. Of course they were. Jesus was himself Jewish. All his original disciples were Jewish. What do you think? There wouldn't be Jewish Christians in the second century? Of course there are. And who were they? They were called the Nazarenes or the Ebionites. And actually, we have a reference to the Nazarene, the sect of the Nazarenes in the book of Acts. Uh, so this is a group that is talked about by later Christians, later what you might call mainstream Christians, looking back on them, and they're like, yeah, I remember those Nazarenes. You know, they were Jews who used the New Testament and the Old Testament. Normal Jews, if you can go down the street and ask one today, they don't use the New Testament. They just use the Old Testament. 
But these Nazarenes use both. They, believe, they keep the law, so they are Sabbath keepers and they keep the food laws and that sort of thing. But they believe in Christ. And they acknowledge one God and his child, Jesus Christ. And so they have a very simple view of who Jesus is. They think of Jesus as being Messiah, raised from the dead. And, they, and he also, uh, a later source, Epiphanius, says that the Nazarenes had their own version of Matthew that was in Hebrew. They had a Hebrew gospel. And they lived in the East. And so this, the scenario that they talk about goes like this. And we're not 100% sure that this is verifiable or not, but this is what Epiphanius says, is that when the Romans came to conquer Jerusalem, they came in, in the late 60s, and then they conquered it in the, seven, in the year 70. The Christians that were there, the Jewish Christians that were there in Jerusalem, remembered that Jesus had said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. So that's what they did. They left. The Christians left. They did not participate in the battle with the Roman Empire. And they went to this place called Pella, Syria, and Bashan. So it's just regions just north of Jerusalem and east, an area also called the Decapolis in the Bible. And so they, they migrated there, and then they just stayed there. And then that's where this Christianity then uh, took hold, was in that region. Jerome, who was a much later Christian, talks about how the Jewish synagogues had a special curse. They would say at every service, in case one of these Jesus believers happened to be in the room, they would be exposed because they couldn't call the curse on themselves. And so there was a, you know, regular Jewish people, and then the Jews that believed in Jesus, and there was a, a animosity there, just like we see in the book of Acts. That shouldn't surprise us too much, right? These Nazarenes, it's, it's real hard to get good information on them, but some speculate that, you know, they might have survived until the 11th century. They say this guy named Cardinal Humbert mentioned them, or in the 13th century mentioned by uh, Gregory as Pisagians. Uh, and there, of course, there are plenty of modern counterparts today of Messianic Jews, many of whom believe in the Trinity, but many of whom do not believe in the Trinity and recognize that there is, that the Father is one God overall and Jesus is subordinate. Then you have the Ebionites. The Ebionites are like the Nazarenes in that they're Jewish Christians who keep the law, but they do not like the virgin birth. So they believe that Jesus had a human father, that Joseph was Jesus' human father. There was no miraculous conception. They also, this group called the Ebionites, believed in no preexistence like the Nazarenes. They sort of fizzled out about by the 7th century. We lose touch with the Ebionites. But they had, they had a very human Christology as well. All right, on to Theodotus of Byzantium. He is somebody that lived in the 2nd century, just like so much of this stuff History is written by the victors, and so I'm dependent on what their enemies say about them, which is really difficult because the enemies are not kind to any of these people. They all say these mean things, and it's very biased. So reading as a historian, I have to like pick out like what is likely from this hostile witness to actually be true and what's just slander. So uh, that is a very difficult task. But I will give you a couple of quotes about them. This is from Pseudo-Tertullian, Against All Heresies, 8 he says, Theodotus the Byzantine taught that Christ was merely a human being, but deny his deity, teaching that he was born of the Holy Spirit, indeed of a virgin, but was a solitary and bare human being. See how they're like making fun of the idea? 
with no preeminence above the rest of mankind, but only that of righteousness. And this is another quote by Hippolytus, Refutation of All Heresies. He says, But there was a certain Theodotus, a native of Byzantium, who acknowledges that all things were created by God. Theodotus maintains that Jesus was a mere man, born of a virgin, according to the counsel of the Father, and that after he had lived with all men and had become preeminently religious, he subsequently, at his baptism in the Jordan, received Christ, who came from above and descended upon him in the form of a dove. And this was the reason, according to Theodotus, why miraculous powers did not operate within him prior to the manifestation in him of that spirit which descended and which proclaimed him to be the Christ. But among the followers of Theodotus, some are disposed to think that never was this man made God, even at the descent of the Spirit, whereas others maintain that he was made God after the resurrection from the dead. All right, so I think this is garbled. What we're hearing here is Hippolytus reporting what he thinks Theodotus believed. And I'm saying the report is not clear. It's garbled. It's, it's mixed up. This idea that at his baptism he received Christ, that doesn't make any sense. Unless you're a Gnostic. If you're a Gnostic, you believe that a Christ is a spiritual aeon that can come down and possess your body, right? But Theodotus it doesn't seem like he would believe that based on everything else that's said about him, that he believed that Jesus was a mere man. You know, if he was a mere man plus this like awesome spirit possessing him, it's not a mere man anymore, is it? Uh, so I think what we have here is just a little bit of uh, a little confusion in the report because later on, instead of saying he received Christ, he says that the spirit which descended and which proclaimed him to be the Christ. That makes sense. So I think he received a christening or an anointing by the spirit that came down in a dove. That's how God anointed him Christ. That's how he made him Messiah. But that's not a being called Christ that came down. That's, that's how I interpret this. Uh, if you go with the other way, then this gets mislabeled adoptionism. And adoptionism is the idea that Jesus was just a regular guy, and then because he was so great, God put a spirit on him and made him a son. That's not what Theodotus believes. Theodotus believes that because of the miracle in his mother, through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? I think that was pretty clear. He was born of a virgin. That would make him not have a human father. So uh, just to clarify that a little bit. But that's a little bit about Theodotus. Uh, there's not much about him other than what I've read to you here. There was a book written against him called The Little Labyrinth, uh, which Eusebius, the historian, uh, quotes from a little bit. But it just says a bunch of nasty stuff about him. You know, It doesn't really give us much information. But in its criticizing of him, this book talks about how Theodotus and those who followed him were really excellent biblical scholars and how they really studied the text. And when you came against them with something, they had an answer for you and how they loved to compare manuscripts to figure out which one was more accurate. These are two very different things, but very important. One is textual criticism, comparing manuscripts to get back to the original. And the other is theology, like being able to like back up your beliefs with verses in a later time when they're writing about Theodotus, everyone is using allegory as the standard interpretation of Scripture, where you use this method of basically making the Scripture say whatever you want. That's my really harsh summary of what allegorizing is. And so the Theodosians didn't do that. 
They took it literally. And uh, so that's another little thing about them. But we don't know too much about Theodotus or those who followed after him. We do know that another person named Artemon flourished around the year 230. About him, it is said that the Savior was a mere man. He did not believe in pre-existence, but it says, uh, the, the church historian Eusebius, for they say that all the early teachers and the apostles received and taught what they now declare, and that the truth of the gospel was preserved until the times of Victor, who was the 13th bishop of Rome from Peter, but that from his successor, Zephyrinus, the truth had been corrupted. So Artemon agrees with Theodotus in theology, also no preexistence, just a human Messiah. And Artemon is saying, and his group is saying, hey, look, everybody believed the same as us until Victor. And it seems like maybe there was like some questionable times with, during the, the time when Bishop was, uh, Victor was the bishop in Rome. But then after his successor, Zephyrinus, came in, it's like the whole church went a different direction in their belief of Christ. So that's, that's a topic for further research, but really fascinating to think about. And this is the church in Rome, not anything to do with the Messianic Jewish Christians who are way over there in the east in obscure lands like Pella. This is like the capital, Rome, where uh, Artemon is. Then we have Paul of Samosata, our last dynamic monarchian, and uh, he was a bishop in Antioch in the year 260. So he's somebody of great significance. He was the viceroy of the queen of Palmyra, and he agreed with Artemon. He believed that in his nature, Christ was a regular human being. And uh, there are actually songs. There's a report of like some of the songs that they used to sing in church that Paul of Samosata said, we got to stop singing these songs. They're, they're, the lyrics are inaccurate. He actually changed the, the lyrics. He said, these, these modern songs are no good. We've got to fix them. I, I kind of relate to that as a pastor today. Sometimes they, you know, these young, young folks write these songs, and you're just like, that's obviously not what the Bible says. So Paul of Samosata was fighting the good fight in the 3rd century. He did not acknowledge that the Son of God had come down from heaven. Uh, so he did not believe in pre-existence as well. Now, there are a bunch of others in the 3rd century that we don't have enough information on for me to say much about them, but I have some of their names. Theodotus the banker, which is a different than this Theodotus. Then Asclepiodotus, if you uh, are thinking about like a name for a kid, Asclepiodotus, you know, it rolls right off the tongue, you know. Uh, Bishop Nat- Natalius, and uh, then Photinus, or Photinus of Sirmium. And Photinus we're going to talk about next time. Photinus is a big deal. He died in the year 376, and he believed just like these other people too. All right, so what about that third group? We looked at the Gnostics and their divine Jesus. We looked at the dynamic Monarchians and their human-only Jesus. What about the other Christians? The Logos Incarnationists. And they have a divine Jesus who became a human Jesus. And this group believed the Logos, or Word, was a divine being brought into existence, or begotten, by the Supreme God through whom he created the world. This Logos became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, often claimed to be Trinitarian. These individuals happily admitted that the Son was inferior to the Father, and thus would have been excluded from orthodoxy by later standards. So I've got a list of eight of them. I'm going to breeze through this ever so quickly. Not a lot of quotes, but just describe a little bit. These, there are lots more. Uh, I've got 
over 20 pages of information, and most of my notes, they have this word skip right next to them. So skip this, Sean. Skip this. It's getting late, I know. But I'll just go through this as uh, quickly as I can, just to give you a flavor for how these more philosophically-minded Christians worked out their understanding of Christ's preexistence in relation to the Father. Okay, So who was the, the Word, or the, the Son, before he became Jesus in relation to the Father? That's an important question. The first one up here is the author of the Epistle of Barnabas, who wrote, yeah, end of the first century, beginning of the second century. And he is the one, the very first one, to look at Genesis 126, where God says, let us make man in our image, and says he's talking to Jesus there. He's talking to Christ before he became a human. That's the epistle of Barnabas, not actually written by the Barnabas that Paul knew. Different person. Uh, Usually we call him pseudo-Barnabas. But (laughs) anyhow, uh, he's the first one that made that connection. There's no question at all this document, the epistle of Barnabas, believed in preexistence. No question at all. Uh, Then you have Hermas, which is uh, Hermas of Rome. Maybe it was his name. We're not sure. He wrote a book called The Shepherd of Hermas. And that's in the second century sometime. And he wrote, first of all, believe that God is one. All right. I, that's pretty good. One God overall. Okay. Believe God is one who created all things and set them in order and made out of what did not exist everything that is and one and who contains all things but is himself alone uncontained. So that's what he believes about God. Then in another quote from uh, the same book, He says, I want to explain to you that the Holy Spirit that spoke with you in the form of the church revealed to you, for that spirit is the Son of God. Huh? So this is a bit convoluted, but this is in some of the literature, they call this spirit Christology, where, where the spirit, the Holy Spirit and Christ are getting confused together and used interchangeably. And then the third quote from him says, the Son of God is far older than all his creation with the result that he was the Father's counselor in his creation. So the shepherd of Hermas recognizes that there's one supreme God who's over all, who then also had this counselor called the Son of God, his own son, who helped him in creation or gave him, what, counsel in creation. It's about as simple as it gets. It gets more complicated from there. Are you ready? Justin Martyr, who wrote in the middle of the second century, about 155, he was a philosopher. He was a legit philosopher. And he became a Christian, and he believed very strongly in preexistence. And he, he writes this really fascinating book, which if you're interested in these subjects, I, I recommend you read. You can get, it's just like a paperback. You can buy it in modern English, called Dialogue with Trifo. And in that book, chapter 48, he says, For my friends, there are some of your race, this is him talking to this Jewish guy named Trifo. So it's a Christian philosopher talking to a Jew, non-Christian Jew. There are some of your race who acknowledge that he is the Christ, but claim that he is of a merely human origin. I naturally disagree with such persons. It appears to me, said Trifo, that they who assert that he was of human origin and was chosen to be anointed and became the Christ propose a doctrine much more credible than yours. We Jews all expect that Christ will be a man of human origin and that Elijah will come to anoint him. And so uh, what we find here is an acknowledgement that there are some, some of these people that believe Jesus is the Christ, but claim that he has a merely human origin. So Justin, in the middle of the second century himself, he believes that Jesus had a heavenly origin, 
but he knows other Christians that believe Jesus had a human origin. And, and his uh, conversation partner, Trifo, says, oh yeah, like that, that's the way we as Jews think about it, that he's going to have a human origin. Justin is comfortable calling Jesus God, but then he'll say Jesus is a second God to the Father. He has no problem calling Jesus a second God. Uh, this is another quote of his from uh, chapter 55. He says, There exists and is mentioned in Scripture another God, what? and Lord under the Creator. See, there's the subordination. Even though Christ pre-exists, there's still one God overall. You see what I'm saying? You catching my drift? So there is another God and Lord under the Creator of all things who is called an angel because he proclaims to man whatever the Creator of the world above him, there is no other God, wishes to reveal to them. He who is said to have appeared to Abraham, Jacob, and Moses, and is called God, is distinct from God, the Creator, distinct, that is, in number, but not in mind. For I state that he never did, this, I like this part, he never did or said anything other than what the Creator, above whom there is no other God, desired that he do or say. So, Justin is going to call Jesus God. I would argue that the translation should be a lowercase g, because he's, he's a heavenly being like an angel who exists prior to his human birth, but he's not in anywhere in the league of the one true God who is overall. This is in Justin's thinking. Let's see, who else we got? Let's skip ahead. Theophilus of Antioch writes at the end of the second century, he says something hysterical. I could not, could not resist reading this to you. Uh, he says, God made all things out of nothing. That's not hysterical. That's awesome. For nothing was coeval with God, but he being his own place and wanting nothing and existing before the ages, willed to make man by whom he might be known for him. Therefore, he prepared the world. For he that is created is also needy, but he that is uncreated stands in need of nothing. God then, this is the part that I think is funny. God then, having his own word internal within his own bowels, begat him, emitting him, along with his own wisdom before all things. The word very nicely translated emitting is actually the word for vomit. So <laughs> this is the picture that Theophilus gives, is that you have this one supreme God who in himself internally has his own word and then vomits his word out and that becomes an independent being. He had his word as a helper in the things that were created by him and by him he made all things. He is called the governing principle because he rules and is Lord of all things fashioned by him. He then, being spirit of God. So now, again, we're getting confused, right? So we had the word, and now we're saying the word, it just is the spirit of God. And governing principle and wisdom and power of the highest came down upon the prophets through whom he spoke of the creation of the world and of all other things. So Theophilus is, is seeing God's internal word become external, and at that point it becomes a living being through whom God creates. And that's kind of the, the gist of a lot of these other guys. They write very similarly to Theophilus of Antioch. Incidentally, he's the first one to use the word Trinity ever uh, in Greek. And by Trinity, he means God, his word, and his wisdom. So there's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one member of three, God, his word, and his wisdom. So Trinity didn't originally mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Uh, Irenaeus writes probably around the year 180, and he talks about how there's one God supreme over all, and uh, he insists that nobody can ever know how, 
how the Son of God came into being originally. And if, and if you even try to figure that out, then you're going to end up in heresy. You're going to end up in trouble. You're going to end up as one of these weirdo groups that we don't even want to talk to. And so that's a little bit about how Irenaeus talks about it. Uh, but he's very much in line with these others. He's very much a one God, overall, the Father is supreme over the Son kind of guy. But he does also believe in preexistence very strongly. Then we have Tertullian of Carthage in the year 197 to 220, somewhere in there he wrote, he said, The Father is not the same as the Son since they differ one from the other in the mode of their being. Tertullian is the first one to use the word Trinity in Latin. And he thinks that the Father is not the same as the Son since they differ one from the other in the mode of their being. The Trinity idea is that they differ in their person. They have the same being, but different persons. So the first Latin person to use the term Trinity got the Trinity wrong. Or maybe the later people that developed the Trinity got the Trinity wrong, but they're not the same, in other words. Just because you see the T word doesn't mean you've got this fully orbed 4th century doctrine. For the Father is the entire substance, Tertullian goes on to say, but the Son is a derivation and a portion of the whole, as he himself acknowledges, my Father is greater than I. In the psalm, his inferiority is described as being a little lower than the angels. Thus the Father is distinct from the Son, being greater than the Son. He showed a third degree in the paraclete, as we believe the second degree is in the Son by reason of the order observed in the economy. Tertullian is philosophically minded. It's fancy. He uses words in complicated ways, like the word economy. But what I find amazing is that Tertullian writes about these simple people that accuse him of believing in multiple gods and want to just believe in one God. And I'm just like, that's totally me. Like, I would be that guy in a city like Carthage. I'd be like, Tertullian, you know, it sounds really nice. You've got this original divine substance, this matter that, that comes out and it generates into this next being, and yet it doesn't lose any of its substance, any of its divine matter. And so the sun is of the same substance, but he's got a lesser portion of it, and then the spirit emanates out of that, has even a less... But dude, isn't that just three gods? <laughs> so this is what he says. He says the simple, and you can, see, you can hear his snobbery in here. These are all very educated, very like powerful people, people whose books get preserved year after year and who are able to read and write in the first place. He says the simple, the simple, indeed, I will not call them unwise and unlearned. Oh, thank you, Tertullian. Thank you for not calling us unwise and unlearned who always constitute the majority of believers. Oh, gosh, he's laying it on thick. We're all dumb except for you, buddy. All right. Are startled at the dispensation of the three in one. Yeah, we are startled, buddy. On the ground that their very rule of faith withdraws them from the world's plurality of gods to the one and only true God. Oh, I like that part. Not understanding that, although he is the one and only God, he must yet be believed with his own oikonomia. That's the word economy. The numerical order and distribution of the Trinity they assume to be a division of the unity, whereas the unity which derives the Trinity out of its own self is so far from being destroyed that it is actually supported by it. Psst, duh. They are constantly throwing out against us that we are preachers of two gods and three gods, while they take to themselves preeminently the credit of being worshipers of the one God. So, in the early 3rd century, in a metropolis like Carthage, there's lots of people that have different views of who God and who Christ are, and they're free to argue about it. As we'll see next time, 
that goes away in the fourth century. Like you could get in serious trouble for disagreeing. Okay, then we have Origen of Alexandria. Origen is the first systematic theologian. He was a legitimate genius. He wrote thousands of books. He had a very wealthy sponsor behind him that hired out these stenographers that would take his dictation and make copies of his books on the fly. And uh, he, was, he really was a genius. Like He had so much memorized of the Bible and uh, could operate in several languages. I could go on and on about Origen, but the, the big point for us today is that he is the most sophisticated thinker of, its, of his time among Christians. He was educated by the founder of Neoplatonism, a guy named Ammonius, uh, Ammonius Saccus of Alexandria. And it was Origen who came up with the idea of what would later be called eternal generation. And it's the idea that the son is eternal. The son has no beginning, but he's not a brother. Right? If you have two individuals that are exactly the same age, you say, oh, they're twins, right? Um, but he said, no, no, no. There's always a father, there's always a son, and he's always generating the son in eternity past. And he comes up with this, uh, this sort of philosophical way of talking about it. But even though he recognizes that the son is eternal, he also affirms that the son is inferior to the father. So he's kind of a midway point between the Logos people, and then the eventual Trinitarians that come in the next century. All right, last guy, Lactantius. Lactantius lived in the 4th century, very early 4th century, and uh, he said that God sent his son as an ambassador to men that he might turn them from their impious and vain worship to the knowledge and worship of the true God. That was the mission of Jesus. But he exhibited faith toward God, for he taught that there is but one God. Jesus taught that there is but one God, and that he alone ought to be worshipped. Nor did he at any time say that he himself was God. For he would not have maintained his faithfulness if, when sent to abolish the false gods and to assert the existence of the one God, he had introduced another besides that one. This would have been not to proclaim one God, nor to do the work of him who sent him, but to discharge a peculiar office for himself, and to separate himself from him whom he came to reveal. On which account, because he was so faithful, talking about Jesus again, but he arrogated nothing at all to himself that he might fulfill the commands of him who sent him, he received the dignity of everlasting priest and the honor of supreme king and the authority of judge and the name of God. So Lactantius, now he's one of these incarnationists. He believes that Christ preexisted and everything else, right? But he also believes that the Father is the one true God that Jesus came to proclaim about and that Jesus only inherited the name God because of his obedience and submission to the Father. All right, let's summarize. Again, this is just looking at the first three centuries, the first century, the second century, the third century. So roughly after the time of Christ in the New Testament, right? So like 70-ish is like our first date up until the year like 313 we just covered. And we saw three major groups. We had the Docetic Jesus. The Jesus that just appeared human, but was really an angelic or spiritual being. And that was the Jesus of the Gnostics and Marcion. And then we had the human-only Jesus, the dynamic Monarchians. And this is a Jesus that did not pre-exist, and a Jesus that's very Jewish. So you have Jewish 
Christians as part of this group, and then non-Jewish Christians like Theodotus that are part in Artemis, that are in Paul of Samosata. Uh, then you have the third group, which is the Word incarnate Jesus. And this is a heavenly Jesus that comes down, but he's still not equal to the Father. So, let's review. Land the plane here. Let's review. A lot of words. Number one, in the first three centuries, Christians held a variety of Christologies, including subordinationist and egalitarian. Number two, the only egalitarian theory prior to the fourth century was modalism. It's the idea that the Son just is the Father. And that was held by a guy named Sibelius and others. We didn't really talk about that. I just wanted you to make, make you aware that there were people that were saying, there's one God overall and his name is Jesus. Nearly all Christians, other than those modalists, um, held to one of the three subordination Christologies. The Gnostic approach saw Christ as an intermediate heavenly being who in some schemes came to earth to bring salvation. He appeared to be in the flesh, but this was an illusion. The dynamic monarchians believed Jesus began his existence when he was miraculously conceived. The Logos incarnationists believed God begot the word through whom he created the world before becoming Christ. For them, the Father is superior to the Son in origin, role, and substance. Number seven, drawing on his Neoplatonic training... Origen first developed the idea of eternal generation, enabling him to affirm both the Son's eternality and his inferiority to the Father. And then last of all, we looked at Tertullian, who theorized that the Son derived his substance from the Father, but not the same amount. It was just a portion of the Father's substance that came through Tertullian. So now next time what we're going to do is we're going to cross the threshold. We've been looking at the first three centuries. We need to cross the threshold. We need to get into, just at least dip our toe. No, let's jump into the fourth century. Let's see what happened because it's chaos. It's bedlam. There's, there's just all kinds of fighting and power struggles and emperors and people getting killed. And it's just unbelievable uh, what happens in the fourth century. So we're going to look at that next time in our class as we continue through Understanding one God overall. Well, that brings this episode to a close. As always, if you'd like to leave any feedback or questions or comments, come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 422 on early church history of the one God idea. As for last week, a number of people wrote in. One of them was Michael, who said, Wonderful teaching, Sean. What to do about Christians who say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues is of the devil? Matthew 12, 31-32. What translation are you using? My NASB does not read the same, and I would like to follow along with the same translation as you. Well, thanks for writing in, Michael. I appreciate you taking the time. As far as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12, I think it's pretty clear that's seeing Jesus performing miraculous miracles, Holy Spirit-empowered acts, and then calling those acts demonic. But as for if somebody is going to call genuine speaking in tongues or genuine acts of healing today of the devil, and therefore that could, that could mean that they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, 
To be honest, I don't think it's that cut and dry. This is something that happened during Jesus' ministry. So it doesn't necessarily apply to everybody before or after it. It could, though. We don't really have anyone reflecting back on this later in the New Testament. So we're, so my advice would be simply this. Just don't do it. You know, if you're not sure, don't call somebody's spiritual expression or manifestation or prophecy or healing or speaking in tongues. Don't call that of the devil. I mean, you're just like asking for trouble there, unless it's clear. You know, if they're prophesying that Jesus is not the Messiah, okay, well, that's pretty easy to know that that's not of God. I think it's just unwise to criticize brothers and sisters to the degree of saying you're sure that it's demonic what they're doing. Again, if it's clear, it's clear, but if it's not clear, then I think we should hold our tongues and you can say, well, I'm not convinced it's genuine, or it could be this, or it could be that. But the moment you make some big, grandiose declaration, as uh, a number of people have in the past in Christianity, then you really do put yourself in danger for this if it applies to others than just Jesus. So, but for me, I'm not even going to take the risk. (laughs) Uh, If something looks bogus, I'm just going to say, that looks bogus. I don't need to say, that's of the devil. That's, he's casting out spirits by the, by the power of Beelzebul. Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. So thanks for that question, Michael. Uh, as far as what translation I use, I typically just use the ESV, the English Standard Version, whatever the latest edition is of that, I think 2016. That's not to say that the ESV is flawless or that it doesn't have some serious blind spots. I think it does. But it is a very literal translation, and at least it does bring into the equation a lot of the more recent discoveries that the NASB 95 does not. If you'd like more on that, you can check out episode 353, Recommended Bible Translations, and see further thoughts that I have on that. I think that generally the, the NASB is pretty good. We're, t- we're, we're haggling over 1% here. That's, that's what we're really talking about. And some of my preferences are stylistic. Uh, The NASB is from the typewriter era where capitalizing words didn't mean shouting at people like it does today. Uh, When italicizing words carried forward from the King James Version meant they were added. Whereas today, if I see an italicized word, I automatically think it means emphasis because that's the way every other piece of English literature works. Uh, so some of those are stylistic issues that I have with the NASB, but, uh, you know, it is an, an excellent translation, uh, especially the 2020 edition, certainly better than the 95. Anyhow, thanks for writing in. Also, Paul wrote in on the last episode called Spirit of God and Christ, and he said, regarding John 14 to 16, this is the first time I've heard of the option that the Holy Spirit might be Jesus speaking of himself in the third person. It's an intriguing idea and does answer some otherwise puzzling statements. I'm going to have to ponder that idea for a while. Well, Paul, that idea came to me from F.F. Bruce's commentary. Not that he goes quite that far, but he heavily leans in that direction. It It just seemed to make a lot of sense to me in light of the fact that Jesus is preparing them for him not being there physically, but being there via the Spirit which seems to be what he's up to. 
in John 14 and 16. Paul continues, It just occurred to me that this interpretation would provide us some illusory common ground with Trinitarians. Wow. Uh, We should both consider the Spirit to be the third person. They would consider him to be the third person of the Trinity. We would consider him to be the third person of Jesus, (laughs) grammatically speaking. Just trying to build bridges where I can, Sean. Well, Paul, good luck with that strategy. You have to let us know if it works in any sense to build any bridges. But uh, to be honest, I'm not all that optimistic. But having said that, there are plenty of Trinitarians. Uh, They get in contact with me and, and others of my colleagues all the time that are coming to see this truth. I mean, it is incredible to see how One God theology is spreading around the world in our own time. In the 21st century, we are seeing this just all the time now and not just in English-speaking countries, all around the world. Uh, so if you are one of these people, or you're curious, maybe you, you don't agree that the Father of Jesus is the only true God, but you're curious, go over to UnitarianChristianAlliance.org and explore the subject a little bit more, because on there we've got a directory where you can find others in your area to get together for Bible study, or there may even be a church in your area with one of the several denominations and groups that that are listed there. And uh, there's also an FAQ to learn more about us and other resources. So take a look at that. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Have a wonderful week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that. Any year-end giving is certainly appreciated. And uh, we are a registered 501c3, so we will be emailing you your contributions for the year in January for, uh, for tax purposes, if you take that into consideration when you do your taxes. And we're just so thankful for uh, those of you who have been supporting and continue to support us. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.